everybody doing this morning? It's getting cold outside. I don't know if you like that or not. I just observation. <laughs> you love it. You would. <laughs> uh, if you don't have a Bible with you today, you can grab the one in the pew in front of you. We're going to be on page 909. And we are in the third week of the season of Advent. Advent, if you recall, means coming. It's the celebration of the coming of Christ into the world. And we've been taking a look at how God is on the move. God is doing something in the world. He's accomplishing something in the world. And different people have different reactions to it. As illustrated in the art piece that we uh, had some of our uh, fine artists commission, we talked about John the Baptist and how God came to him, and, or the father of John the Baptist, sorry, Zechariah, and, and said, hey, you're going to have a son. His name is going to be John. And Zechariah's response was like, I'm not really sure I believe you. So sometimes God is doing something and we doubt that. We doubt his character. And we took a look at Mary last week and the angel came to Mary and said, hey, the son of God, the Messiah, the king is going to be born to you. And she said, okay, that's weird. Sign me up. Because God is doing something and he wants human partners for some reason. He doesn't need us, but he asks us to participate in his work with him. And today we're going to take a look at another character in the story in Luke chapter 2. We ended last week talking about the song of Mary. She, she rejoiced in, in Luke chapter 1. She praised God for looking on her, a lowly peasant girl, and how God's plan was going to topple the mighty and exalt the lowly and satisfy the hungry. And we kind of ended with, you know, most of us aren't lowly and hungry and we're more along the lines of mighty and powerful. We have resource and position and privilege. And what does it mean to follow a leader that brings good news to the poor? And part of the reason that that is challenging for us is because we are self-sufficient people. We have abilities, we have talents, we have resources, we are capable and we can generally handle our own affairs. Uh, before we get any farther, I want to show you a clip from the film Malice. I haven't seen it, but I've, this is a fairly famous clip from it. Uh, and we'll talk about it in a second. The question is, do I have a God complex? Dr. Kessler says yes. Which makes me wonder if this lawyer has any idea as to the kind of grades one has to receive in college to be accepted at a top medical school. If you have the vaguest clue as to how talented someone has to be to lead a surgical team. I have an MD from Harvard. I am board certified in cardiothoracic medicine and trauma surgery. I have been awarded citations from seven different medical boards in New England and I am never, ever sick at sea. So I ask you, when someone goes into that chapel and they fall on their knees and they pray to God that their wife doesn't miscarry, 
or that their daughter doesn't bleed to death, or that their mother doesn't suffer acute neural trauma from post-operative shock, who do you think they're praying to? Now, you go ahead and read your Bible, Dennis, and you go to your church, and with any luck you might win the annual raffle, but if you're looking for God, he was in operating room number two on November 17th, and he doesn't like to be second-guessed. You ask me if I have a God complex? Let me tell you something. I am God. So you watch that, and I mean, I feel like I just immediately hate that guy, right? <laughs> but he's, a, he's being challenged. He's a doctor. He's being challenged on his, his character, his practice, his decision-making, and his retort is that He's totally justified in everything that he does and says and is because he is talented, because he deserves to be honored and valued because of his skills, because of his abilities. And I think most of us wouldn't like immediately go there if we had to defend ourselves. But I think for many of us, we feel that down inside. You know what? I've, I've got this pretty much figured out. I've, I've got it together. Martin Luther wrote, a God is whatever we expect to provide all good and in which we take refuge in all distress. Whatever you set your heart on and put your trust in, that, I tell you, is your true God. And so for many of us living in 21st century America, we have no need for anything outside of our own resources. We can just get stuff done. And for all intents and purposes, even if we wouldn't say it as brashly as Alec Baldwin, we are our own God. Capable people are in danger of making a God out of themselves. And when God comes and says, hey, I'm doing something in the world, as is the case of Advent, He's coming, he's bringing his son, he's rescuing people from their sin and from death. It's not that we openly reject God, it's just that we don't even notice that he's there. We're going to take a look at a uh, less important character in the story of the birth of Jesus this morning, starting in Luke chapter 2. Uh, Luke, who was a first century historian, researching and interviewing the personalities that were involved in the story of the birth of Christ, uh, writes down, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. So Luke is just setting up the story. This is the timeline for when this goes down. The birth of Jesus is going to uh, be here in just a few more verses. And this is when it happened. But this morning, I want to talk about this guy named Caesar Augustus. Augustus is, at this time in history, the king of the world. This is the only time he's referenced in the New Testament. We know a lot about him from Roman history, though. His name is Gaius Octavius when he was born. He was born in 63 BC. Uh, he was adopted by his great uncle Julius Caesar, if you've heard of him, and he became the first emperor of Rome. 
And his authority, his responsibility, his power, it shaped him. It defined who he was. He was a master administrator, and he ushered in Rome's golden age, something called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And the way he did this was by leading the Roman armies out to the fringes of the empire, conquering the barbarians, mercilessly slaughtering thousands in his quest to expand and unify the empire. By the time that we read about him in Luke chapter 2, he's calling himself the chief priest of Rome. He's calling himself the father of the country. And he's also calling himself the son of the divine. He's a lot like Alec Baldwin. He's good at his job, and he knows it. And he's completely preoccupied with running this world empire. So Augustus is focused on counting his subjects and collecting revenue. He's, gonna, he's recently annexed what um, would be called Palestine at the time, the area of Jerusalem, modern-day Israel. And he wants to count everyone there because he wants to make sure he gets enough tax revenue. And see, from Luke's perspective, there are big things happening in the world. The Messiah is coming, the King, the Son of God, the one who has come to save humanity. And Augustus is focused on temporary things. He's focused on taxes and revenue and censuses. The real king, the real son of God is coming into the world. He's being born. And Augustus doesn't have eyes to see it. I read a story this, uh, a few months ago about French submariners, people on submarines. And apparently, I don't know if this is what happens in the U.S. military, but in the French military, when you're on a submarine and you're underwater, they don't tell you anything about what's going on above you. And so there were these submarines that went out on mission in February of this year, and this was like April or May, and the story was saying, these guys have no idea about COVID. They have no idea about this pandemic. They don't have any idea that anything is going on that's bigger in the world than what they're focusing on on their boat. Because they said, you know, it's just not important to their mission. We don't want to burden them with these big world ideas and problems and issues because they've got this thing going on. And in a similar way, this is Augustus. He's, he can't be burdened by what God is doing in the world because he is so focused on what he's got going on. He's got an empire to run. He's got revenue to bring in. He's got taxes to gather. And whatever is happening out there, it just isn't that big a deal. And I wonder for some of us, if, if we don't just effectively live our lives that way, we don't have time to pray, we don't have time to read God's word, we gather with God's people irregularly because we're doing more important things. John Mark Comer in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, says, the mind is the portal to the soul, and what you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. In the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you gave your attention to. And I wonder, how much of my attention do I give to things that really matter? And how much do I spend working out my own agenda, 
figuring out my, my own personal plans, you know, manipulating my little world empire. Augustus is so busy running the world that he doesn't see that the king is being born in his very empire. But look at verse 6, or sorry, verse 4. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So what's happening here is that Luke is telling us that while Augustus might be ignorant of God, God is not ignorant of Augustus. Augustus is busy seeing himself as his own God, calling himself the son of the divine and running his empire, but God is actively using Augustus to accomplish his purposes. See, the the king, the Messiah, the prophets in the Hebrew scriptures, they they talked about how this king was going to come for hundreds of years before this happened. And one of those prophets named Micah, he writes in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, he says, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. So Micah, God gives Micah insight into the future. And Micah says, you know, the king, the one that's going to save the people, he's going to be born in Bethlehem this little town in Judea. But Joseph and Mary, Mary's been told, you're going you're gonna to have a son, you're a virgin, but you're still going to get pregnant and have a son, you're going to name him Jesus. And Joseph, I know that there's some weird stuff happening, but I still want you to marry Mary, I want you to care for her. They live up in Nazareth. They live about 100 miles away in a different town. Google Maps tells me it's a 32-hour walk from Nazareth to Bethlehem. But Micah said, the king's going to be born in Bethlehem. But see, God already knows what he's going to do. He's he's not going to prevent Caesar Augustus from exercising his agenda in the world. He's going to use it for his own purposes. Joseph... His family came from Bethlehem, and and Caesar said, you have to go to your ancestral family to get registered. So Joseph and Mary, they had to leave Nazareth, and they had to go to Bethlehem for this silly tax that Augustus was instituting. Now, Augustus doesn't know anything about this, but God is still in control. Yahweh doesn't prevent Caesar's agenda from coming to pass. He uses it for his own purposes. And I think this is a scary place to be. Augustus was incredibly successful. And when when we're incredibly successful, we often think that, you know, God must be blessing us. God must be doing something in in the midst of what we're about because look at everything's going so great. Everything's working so well. But the truth is that's, that's not necessarily the case. Sometimes 
God lets us do what we want to do because it suits him. But it doesn't mean he's happy about it. It doesn't mean he wants it to go on. Augustus is calling himself God, refusing to seek the true God. God's not happy about that. But he says, you know what, I'm just going to use your agenda and I'm going to get my stuff done. And then think about Mary and Joseph. Mary's about ready to have a baby. She lives in Nazareth and she finds out that she has a 32-hour walk to Bethlehem. And it's not, it's not an easy walk. It's a dangerous walk. There's robbers and, and thieves along the way. What must Mary and Joseph be thinking? This can't possibly be part of God's plan. What is God doing? Doesn't he know that I'm pregnant? He told me I was going to get pregnant. He made me pregnant, and now he's going to make me walk a hundred miles? Surely this isn't the way it's supposed to be. I ran across a quote from J. Vernon McKee, who was an old pastor. He says, this is God's universe, and God does things his way. You might have a better way, but you don't have a universe. And that's, that's true, right? God is, God is in control. God is doing something in the world. He has a plan. He has a purpose. He's asking us to participate with him. But if we're too busy, if we're too distracted, if we're too apathetic to care, he's going to get it done anyway. And he's using a self-centered, powerful person that has no time for him, who even thinks he's a God himself, to move his people where he wants them to be. Look at verse 7. Then she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So I've been present at two births. I know some of you have probably been present at a lot more than that. Um, birth is, is hard, it's painful, sometimes it's scary. I remember when Karis was born, um, it, was, it was long, it was hard. I was exhausted at the end. That's funny, but I actually had mono when Karis was born, and I'm, I'm pretty sure Joanna was there, but all I remember was how tired I was. But there's this moment and, I, and I, I remember this moment with both of my daughters when a brand new baby is in the arms of its mother and father for the first time and everything is right in the world. Parents, do you remember that moment where like everything that just happened and everything that's going to happen just doesn't matter because there's these two little eyes staring back up at you and it's amazing. Mary and Joseph have a difficult journey. 
They can't find any place comfortable and private to stay. So they have to make use of probably a lower story of a home of a friend or a family member, which is basically the garage where the animals are kept. The Prince of Peace is born. And I have to assume for at least a while, nobody really cared about the manger or the census or the taxes or the Romans. The only thing that mattered in that moment was staring back at them through the eyes of this baby. Augustus Caesar, he couldn't be bothered by the fact that the king was coming. But for Mary and Joseph, Jesus was all that they could think about. He was the only thing that was important in the world. That prophet Micah who said the the king is going to be born in Bethlehem, a couple verses later he says this, he will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord his God. They will live securely for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. See, Jesus is born into the world, not just as a baby that we sort of celebrate at Christmas time for some reason, and then there's also like, you know, Santa Claus and, and all these other weird things that we do at Christmas. Jesus is born into the world as direct competition to the values and priorities of the kingdom of Caesar. Caesar Augustus spent his entire life clamoring for power, using violence to further his agenda, deceiving and deal-making and propping up people and tearing people down and abusing others as he saw fit. And Jesus is born into the world And in that moment, when when Caesar doesn't even realize it, Jesus, called the Prince of Peace, comes and he brings peace first to his parents. And then that peace is going to spread out into the whole world. I want to read you some of an article by N.T. Wright. Um, It's called The Most Dangerous Baby. It's kind of long, so it's not going to be up on the screen. But he writes, here is the old king in Rome, turning 60 in the year Jesus was born. He represents perhaps the best that pagan kingdoms can do. At least he knows that peace and stability are good things. Unfortunately, he has had to kill a lot of people to bring them about and has had to kill a lot more on a regular basis to preserve them. Unfortunately, too, his real interest is in his own glory. Already, before his death, many of his subjects have become to regard him as divine. Here, by contrast, is the young king in Bethlehem, born with a price on his head. He represents the dangerous alternative, the possibility of a different empire, a different power, a different glory, a different peace. The two stand over against one another. Augustus's empire is like a well-lit room at night. The lamps are arranged beautifully. They shed pretty patterns, but they have not conquered the darkness outside. 
Jesus' kingdom is like the morning star rising, signaling that it is time to blow out the candles, to throw open the curtains, and to welcome the new day that is dawning. Glory to God in the highest and peace among those with whom he is pleased. I think we have an opportunity at Advent where we, we, get, to, we get to think maybe more carefully at this time of year about these things. We get an opportunity to slow down, to focus on the kingdom of Jesus and his peace that is breaking into the world. But we just, we constantly run the risk of being like Augustus, of just being too busy, of being too successful, too powerful, too preoccupied to even notice that Jesus is the answer to our longings and desires. Augustus strove his whole life to create peace in the empire. And like N.T. Wright said, he killed a lot of people to do it. But Jesus brings peace not by killing, not by pursuing power, but by dying, by giving power away. Jesus' peace comes from the cross. And this is what we, we remember when we celebrate communion every week. We take the bread and the cup and we're asked to consider the cross of Christ. The bread, Jesus said, this represents my body, broken for you. The, the cup, the juice, he says, this represents my blood shed. And when Jesus had an opportunity about 30 years from when he was born to stand up, to rise up, to assert himself as the true king, the way he did that was totally different than anyone expected. He stood up to the Roman army. He stood up to the Roman governor. And he let them kill him. He let them treat him as a criminal. He willingly went to the cross, not because he was guilty of anything, but because we are. Because we, like Augustus, we live our lives constantly with our own agenda. Like Martin Luther said, we become our own gods. Maybe we don't think that way. Maybe we won't vocalize it like Alec Baldwin did. But we're just so busy. We're so focused on the things that we have to get done that we have no time for the peace of God. And for some of us, we, we've openly rejected God, but for many of us, we just can't be bothered to spend any time getting to know Him. And so Jesus comes into the world as our peace, and He goes to the cross to deal with our rebellion, with our sin, with the brokenness that lives inside of us, the part of our heart that has nothing to do with God and doesn't want His authority over our life. And on the cross, He deals with our sin. He, he nails it to the cross and He kills it. And death and destruction that is alive in us is conquered by Jesus. And as we take communion, we acknowledge that about us. We acknowledge that we are Jesus' people, that we need His peace. 
We need his sacrifice. We need his life in us in order to live. And so as we, as we sing, as we take communion, I would just encourage you to examine your life. Where are the areas where you just, you're not actively rebelling against God, but you just don't have time. It's just, a, it's just too busy. There's things to do. There's places to go and people to meet. And I don't have time to be in the Word of God because it's just so busy. I don't have time to cultivate a relationship through prayer because it's just, there's so much to do. I don't have time to focus on the things that matter because there's an empire to build. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you where those things are in your heart. And remember that even in the midst of that, even in the midst of acknowledging that, hey, you know what? I'm I'm not measuring up. I'm not living a life in service to the king. Communion reminds us that we've been freed from guilt. We've been freed from shame because Jesus bore those things for us. And we are freed to walk with him and live with him and experience his peace that he first brought to his parents so long ago. All of our striving and our pushing and our warring to make something of ourselves, it doesn't satisfy us. But Jesus, he promises that he will satisfy us. He will bring us peace. And his kingdom and his values are ultimately going to win the day. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.